Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. The following is a CA original. The Mighty Sound of the South, tailgating on Tiger Lane. Each one a Memphis football tradition. This is the Tiger Football Podcast. What's happening, Tiger football fans? We are back for another edition of the Tiger Football Podcast. I'm Mark Giannato, commercial appeal sports columnist. I'm joined, as always, by Evan Barnes, our Tiger football beat writer. Uh, you know, a bit of a melancholy episode this week coming off of the uh, a crushing, I'd say, loss to Houston. Um, not because it was a loss, but because of how it happened. Tiger's... Uh, lose 33-32, lose a 19-point lead in the fourth quarter, a 13-point lead over the final four minutes, Um, a game in which ESPN's uh, probability model had them as a 99.9% chance to win uh, right before Houston collected that last onside kick. Um, Also, the, the... this is now the this that was the 130th game in FBS this year, in which a team entered the fourth quarter leading by 19 or more points. Uh, Memphis became the first to lose that game when they were leading by 19 or more points. So obviously, uh, not ideal. Um, a you know a chance to really assert themselves. Memphis had uh, to assert themselves as like a true contender in the AAC becomes. You know, as heartbreaking a loss as they've had in recent memory, um, just a you know a total collapse uh, that ruined what was uh, you know arguably for three quarters their best game, best performance of the season. Um, so a lot to unpack there with two road games in a row coming up. First ECU this weekend, then Tulane the week after. Evan, let's just start here. Um, what? What was your initial reaction Friday night games over you filed your story um, and you reflected on what you had just watched how Memphis had, you know, blown what was going to be a a really nice win for the program. What were your, you know, what were you thinking in that moment? Like, how did you digest, you know, what happened on Friday night for the Tigers? (laughs) Honestly, I don't even know. I'm not even sure I could say it because you'd have to bleep me out because it was just kind of that like confusion. Like what the heck did we just see? I mean, we were busy in the press box scrambling to rewrite our stories thinking, okay, we went from writing these great columns, these great features, these, I mean, great stories from the game to all of a sudden, like, how did this happen? Like it, it was one of those things that was so mystifying that was just, just even though you watched it, you're thinking to yourself, how did that happen? Like, and that's just my honest reaction. Even now, a few days later, it's still kind of like Memphis was playing so well, doing so much right. They started the game scoring. They defended really well. And then it seemed like every single flaw that has been kind of like hinted at this year, it just kind of came out in that fourth quarter, whether it was 
poor kickoff return coverage, whether it was not being able to defend the pass well, um, the offense not being able to run the ball to finish the game out, um, all the things that kind of, you know, came out over the course of the season, that fourth quarter felt like a crystallization of just like every red flag to shine even brighter in front of the whole country watching that game. So it, it was confusion. But then at the same time, you were like, well, if you keep making these mistakes here and here and here, it's going to catch up to you. And it caught up to them like the tortoise, you know, like the tortoise beating the hair, I guess. I don't even, I don't even know if that's a great analogy. Like what, what's the best analogy for getting caught from behind? Like, I, I don't, I can't think of one right now. Yeah. I don't know. It's it. I had never, I watched collapses like that. I feel like on television, but I'd never been in person at one. Like I'd never covered one. I'd never been a fan at a game like that where a team just, totally collapses like Memphis did ultimately in those last four minutes. And what was crazy about it in retrospect is I still, I didn't think they were going to lose the game until Houston recovered that onside kick with a minute 17 to go. Yeah. Even though they were, you know, they gave up the kickoff return for a touchdown. They didn't, they got, they settled for a couple field goals. Um, Houston drove down really quickly. Um, I, I still, I still, even after Houston scored to make it 32-26, I still thought, I was just like, they're going to recover the onside kick and the game will be over. Like, it'll be a little closer, you know, than it really the the game indicated, um, the actual game, but, like, they'll win the game still. And, like, but but I'll say this, once Houston recovered that onside kick, there was no doubt in my mind Memphis was losing the game at that point. I did not think at that point with the way the momentum had shifted that they were going to stop Houston from scoring there. Um, and and that's what happened. And so um, now you've got a Memphis team that's kind of, you know, it's, in, it's an interesting uh, dynamic because they're having to pick up the pieces from a game again where they, you know, for three quarters – looked really good um, as a team, looked like they were making a statement of, hey, we're going to be, you know, like like we said going into this, like we're going to be in the mix for the AAC uh, championship game this year. Um, that's how I thought they looked that good early on. You know, the first touchdown, their first drive of the game, they went right down the field on Houston. One right. of the most impressive drives of the year. Um, and, you know, that Gabe Rogers play, <clears throat> at the start of the fourth quarter where he, ta- he throws. <clears throat> I-, I don't know if Seth Hennigan's going to be able to beat that throw ever at- this year. That's how good a throw it was um, <clears throat> from Gabe Rogers on the trick play. And it felt like that was like, oh, this that's the play where they announce themselves as AAC contenders like that right there. And and they're up 26-7 and they should, you know, you'd, you expected them to cruise from there. And, um... So that's what you have to deal with of, yeah, there were a bunch of things we did well, um, but to lose the way they lost, you know, you worry about, um, I I don't even think of the mistakes as much as just the psyche of the team. When you lose a game like that, um, obviously you worry about how that's going to affect them moving forward. Um, because it's such an emotional and disheartening way to lose a game um, where you were the better team for most of the game, and then you just played a horrific four or five minutes, really, basically, where everything that could go wrong did go wrong. And it, it's, you know, 
it's just a fascinating dynamic. I mean, I'm curious in terms of what we saw break down there, Evan, what was most alarming to you about the collapse? Like what worried you the most, what worries you the most moving forward about how they collapsed down the stretch? You know, whether it's the, the special teams mistakes or the offense, you know, getting a little maybe conservative, settling for field goals or the defense kind of going into prevent mode and changing what it did successfully for three quarters, you know, because they had a lead, um, just the general game management, um, by Ryan Silverfield, both in terms of the demeanor of the team in terms of how aggressive they are in certain situations, but also, you know, just decision-making situational decision-making. What do you, when you look, when now, as we move forward, what to you about this collapse was the most concerning part? I think it was the defense because you can save special teams, but that was the first kickoff return touchdown Memphis had given up in since 2008. So that was kind of okay. Bad play. You know, it's been almost a gener- couple generations people have seen that happen to Memphis. Okay. The offense being conservative, not scoring as many touchdowns, we've kind of seen that all season. Like we've seen how the offense has struggled to um, finish, you know, some drives. Um, but the defense kind of, you know, giving way was a little bit concerning for two reasons. One, statistically, Memphis is one of the worst pass defenses in the country, and they've kind of been able to overcome that with creating takeaways. That fourth quarter, they were getting picked apart by Clayton Toon left and right, and it was concerning because that's what you fear could happen in a game against a team that just has a quarterback who'll sit back, pick them apart, and do whatever. And two, what's also concerning is that fourth quarter, Quindell Johnson wasn't on the field. He was injured, um, didn't play in that fourth quarter, was kind of off and on in that third. So he was not on the field, and I think that's a correlation there. Now, Quindell Johnson, obviously, Ryan Stillfield did, t- did tell us that he is day-to-day. Um, as we record this on Tuesday, he was wearing a green non-contact jersey at practice. Um, he was he went through uh, team warm-ups, but when it went to individual drills, he was kind of standing to the side. So we're going to see what his status is. We don't know what his injury, but that concerned me because that defense, which, you know, again, Quindell Johnson is arguably, arguably your best defensive player. That pass defense got a whole lot worse with him off the field. And if he can't go against ECU, again, you're hoping he can, but if he can't go, that concern with Houston is going to be the big concern going to ECU because they were already a rough defense against the pass. And now you're possibly doing that against an ECU team on the road. Maybe, you know, with your best defender, you know, questionable or day to day, that's what concerned me the most is that the defense, which has been so good up to that point, it finally collapsed. And I think everyone watching this defense was probably thinking they've been really well getting turnovers. They've done a great job being aggressive at times, but is that pass defense going to let them down at some point? And this time it did. Yeah. It's so hard for me to reconcile. Cause like you look at all these different facets that went wrong, like, the the defense going to prevent mode. If they just make one tackle on fourth and 11, when Clayton Toon like broke three different tackles and got a first down running, um, like I think we're talking totally differently about the strategy of going to a prevent defense. Um, you know, and offensively, um, you look at it, they kind of, you know, maybe they took their ga- foot off the gas pedal a little bit, started running the ball more. Um, and they settled for field goals, um, when they could have gotten touchdowns, um, you know, but at the same time, you know, they were up two scores with four minutes to go, 
You know, what What else do you really want your offense to do in situations like that? Um, I, You know, again, they could have scored touchdowns and completely put the game away, but, you know, you should be able to win a game. You're up 13 with four minutes to go. Um, you know, and, you know, really to me, I think I guess it was, the you know, the special teams to me, because when you look at it, you know, they've been bad on kickoff return all year and they give up an 100-yard kickoff return when they really should have been putting away Houston. And then, you know, they don't recover one of the two onside kicks. But, you know, at the same time, like, I think if you go back and watch the film, that Houston onside kick was pretty good. Um, so I think <laughs> I go more just the overall – it's the overall part of it in that it's another game where they blew a lead – and another game where it felt like they took their foot off the gas pedal. And, you know, it's partly on the players, but it also feels like, you know, we now have different coordinators, different players than a year ago in a lot of spots. And yet here we are again, just like last year, where they blew a bunch of late leads and it really changed, fundamentally changed the season, um, you know, the way we view that season. Um, so that's really what concerns me. I looked it up. It's the fourth time in the last 15 games Memphis has lost when it led late in the third quarter, and three of them they led in the fourth quarter. Um, And if you go back to the start of the Silverfield era, from what I understand, my radio partner Jeffrey Wright looked this up, there are only two teams in the country that have blown more double-digit leads than Memphis. It's Auburn and it's Texas. Memphis is third since then. So, um, it, that part is what concerns me. It's just the, I don't know. I don't know if I call the, it's not even like the, the down to down decision-making, you know, like people were, were really on Silverfield for going for two, but like, I don't, I didn't disagree. I didn't, I wasn't passionately against it in the moment. And the reality was it was a moot point because Houston then went for two and didn't get it on the, their next touchdown drive, and they would have gone for one if Memphis had kicked the extra point. So, like, it didn't really matter in the outcome of the game. Um, and then, you know, I guess, you know, and then the two timeouts he burned before the final drive, you know, one was on the two, on Houston's two-point conversion because Houston was in a four-wide receiver set and Memphis didn't have the right personnel on the field. And then mm-hmm. Memphis got a stop after the timeout. So it seems like it seemed like it was a good timeout. And then the very next, that that ensuing kickoff, Ryan called a timeout again to set up for the extra point. And that was the, or excuse me, set up for the onside kick. And that was the onside kick they recovered. So that seems like it was probably a good timeout too. Now you can, you can make the argument and I think you'd be right. I didn't understand why he used his timeout when he did on the final drive on Memphis's last ditch drive where he, they got a first down and he called a timeout, even though he could have maybe clocked it and pocketed the timeout. If you get another play, um, you know, another play downfield. Um, but at that point, like, honestly, it felt like Memphis going down the field and kicking a game-winning field goal felt more improbable at that point than what Houston had just done. Um, so I, I think, I guess I would go with, like, just the overall – Whatever's whatever is is damaging them philosophically in terms of keeping these leads, um, that's the most concerning part. Because basically, what happened to them Saturday or Friday night is really what ended up being a huge tripping point on last year's season, and that's concerning that that has cropped up again. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, you think about the UTSA loss where they blew the 21-point lead. They have two road games after that. They go to Temple. They blow a 17-point lead and lose. Then they go to Tulsa, and they just weren't it was a it was a fight where you felt like Memphis could lose this game. This they something about that game just felt bad going in. And you and what you're worried about as a well, Memphis fan is you're kind of in the same situation here. Except I would argue that this ECU and this Tulane team are far are far more better than the Temple and two, uh, Tulsa teams Memphis played last year. So it almost feels like not just deja vu, but could it be worse? Because you kind of need these two games to kind of you know see where the season's going to be remembered. Because let's assume, you know, you split these two games coming up. You're still in good shape to possibly get seven, eight wins. If you lose both of these games, you're in a really, really tough spot. So I think, yeah, you're right, Mark. I think how Memphis responds on Saturday is getting is going to either have people feeling good or bad because by the time you get to Tulane, I think everyone's already going to be set in their mind what that game is going to be, regardless, you know, if you win, if you win, It'll be a little bit better. But if you lose, everyone's going to feel a little bit down about that game going to New Orleans. Yeah, I mean, very clearly, I think this is a really, I mean, this is a really important stretch, not just for this season, but for Ryan Silverfield. You know, Evan, it's interesting now that we heard from Ryan Silverfield from his press conference earlier this week. He said, no one here is happy with our record. Um, You know, the four and two record. And I do find that to be an interesting comment because... That's the weird dynamic at play here moving forward is the way that loss went down against Houston just, you know, really just created just a sinking feeling and like, you know, ultimately. And it just the way you losing like that just hurts exponentially. Um, but four and two is the record I think most everyone pegged them to be at when the season started at this point, you know, I think most people thought they'd lose to Mississippi state. And then you're like, you know what? Like the schedule's soft, the next four games, you hope they win at Navy and then take care of business at home against, uh, against Arkansas state, North Texas and temple. And then, you know, hope, you know, you know, Houston could be a toss up game because it's at home, but they're the preseason conference favorite. You don't expect, you know, necessarily to win that game. And they didn't, now, in retrospect, one, Houston not as good as people thought they were going to be in the preseason. And then two, the way it, you lost it is particularly disheartening. Um, but nonetheless, they sit here at four and two. As loud as some fans are getting about their kind of discontent with the Ryan Silverfield era, they do have the record like most people would have pegged them at uh, after six games. And... That's why I think moving forward is so important for both the pro this team and also Silverfield. Cause like after a loss like that, you're just not going to stay stagnant to me, either it's going to be a turning point that you look back on and like, you know, you rise up because of it, or it's going to be something that craters your season or, or really slows you down. Like, like last year where it felt like they were never quite the same after blowing those leads against UTSA and Temple. Um, and so that's what I, that to me, these next three, four games, um, they're going to, they're going to tell us everything I think we want to know about this team, but also, frankly, Ryan Silverfield, because, um, you know, if, if these don't go the right, right way, if they're one and three or oh and four, these next four games against, you know, two road games against 
um, ECU and Tulane, followed by an off week, and then home games, two home games in five days against UCF and Tulsa. You know, if you're one and three, zero oh and four, you know that's you know that's gonna, especially given how people are already kind of, you know, murky, if you will. On you know, I think it's still a vocal minority who are like totally discontent with Ryan Silverfield and the direction the program's going, but. I don't think there's a there's a lot of people who are convinced Ryan Silverfield can get the job done at the level Memphis football fans now expect it to be done. I think there's a lot of people on the fence still, um, and the way the rest of this season goes, I think is going to determine what side of the fence those people land on. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting you say that because honestly. You know, we said before the year that this was going to be kind of a make or break, not make or break, but a pivotal year, whether it's going to be either a turning point or some of the issues from last year were going to just rear their ugly head and be looming over the program. And so um, we said before the year, too, these four games from Houston to UCF would be probably the stretch at the side of your season. Well, now they're in they're in that stretch now. They took care of business the previous four games. Now, how will they take care of business these next these next three? Because Again, last year's team, you go from 3-0 and to finishing the year 6-6. Six and six. This team, with a lot of those guys back, and, you know, they tried not to, you know, bring up last year. They tried not to say it's, you know, a whole new team. But a lot of those guys were back, and you don't have a Calvin Austin or Sean Dice that can bail you out or a J.J. Russell or a Dylan Parham. So we're going to have to see kind of how this team, if they can look past that from last year and say, no, we're not that same team. We're going to take care of business. But if they don't, then it's fair to ask kind of, you know, where this program is going. And then again, you know, looming over all this is you're going into an AAC next year where if you, let's say they lose to Houston, you know, you lose to Houston, you lose to UCF in three, in in a month. That's going to leave a bad stand in people's mouths going into a new AAC where those teams in Cincinnati are gone. You go into a conference that's going to get weaker and everyone's going to be like, okay, you may dominate this group, but the teams that you really wanted to dominate are gone. So there's a lot that can happen over these next this next month or so, these next three or four games that I think um, it's fair to say, you know, what people feel about this program by the time the UCF game is over, it could probably be the way people feel about this entire season, regardless if they make it to a bowl game and win or not. Yeah, and it starts with this ECU game. Tough place to play at when ECU is good. Um, I don't know if I'd call, you know, ECU's had, you know, people thought this was going to be kind of a breakthrough year potentially for them um, under Mike Houston, but uh, they've kind of, they've, they've struggled a little bit here this season, more so than I think people expected. Um, They lost close to NC State to start the year, um, then uh, beat uh, Old Dominion and Campbell, lost to Navy. Um, in overtime at home and then beat uh, uh, beat South Florida and then lost to Tulane this past week on the road. Um, right. So they are, what, three and three, I think, coming into this? Three, three and three, yes. Um, so, but they have Houston Aylers, that quarterback who seems to have been there forever and has done damage to the Tigers. Obviously, they beat Memphis in Memphis last year. Another game where Memphis led late in the third quarter, ultimately, you know, that was a close game back and forth most of the game, but they did, Memphis did lead 
going into you know late in the third quarter in that one. They end up losing in overtime on a uh, somewhat controversial decision by Ryan Silverfield to go for two and the win in overtime. Um, and and obviously Memphis did not get it. Uh, and you, ECU won. But what do you? Uh, what are your thoughts on this matchup, Evan? As we look ahead to this, you know, a, a you know, it's not a big game on the national landscape. A lot of big games around the country this weekend, but for Memphis, it is a pretty big game. Absolutely, I mean, it's an evening game, six thirty p.m. Um, I think it's I I before the year, I thought this was a game that Memphis could get tripped up on because I figured you mentioned Holden Aylers, who's the AAC's all-time leader, I believe, in total offense. And passing yards, he's approaching Brady White's AAC record for passing touchdowns. Um, you know, when when Memphis played there in 2018, I watched him play. That shows you how long it's been. So, like, he's he's been there while. He knows the offense. Um, but what scares you about this ECU team, if you're a Memphis fan, this offense is pretty balanced. Where they can beat you on the run, they can beat you with the pass. Um, I think Keaton Mitchell is probably one of the more dynamic running backs in the AAC because he's a very fast fast young man and then ECU also has two receivers that can beat you in a variety of ways I believe CJ Johnson is their big big play threat he's got an A I think he leaves the AAC in touchdowns and then you also have um their other receiver I believe it is uh, I was trying to find his name it's okay um but yeah CJ John oh yeah Isaiah Winstead who is third in the AAC in receiving yards and CJ Johnson who I just mentioned leaves the AAC in receiving touchdowns. So you have two players who can do damage, which is why you have to really hope that Quindell Johnson is healthy because it's not just worrying about one receiver and Tank Dell like last week. You got to worry about two receivers that can hurt you. Um, and so we will see, but that's kind of what stands out to me. And also ECU, as Ryan Schofield told us, is one of the nation's best in red zone defense, which again, Memphis was one for five scoring touchdowns in the red zone. Um, against Houston, and yes, Memphis is still one of the nation's top red zone offenses overall, but they have struggled scoring touchdowns. So ECU has been great stop, stopping teams in the red zone. So I think it's going to be an interesting clash of styles where it's going to be a game where Memphis has to be able to shake this off and be ready because ECU, after that two-lane loss, they're going to be angry, they're going to be upset, and they're going to not want to look bad at home, which is their homecoming game Saturday. So I think it's going to be a really interesting matchup where um, if Memphis doesn't take care of business, ECU can catch them sleeping. Yeah, I mean, by the numbers, this is a pretty good offense. They are, um, I believe, yeah, they're they're fourth in the AAC in rushing with the third leading rusher um, in the entire league, and they're third in passing um, and third in total offense this year. Um, so it's, uh, you know, probably in terms of the numbers, probably the best offense this defense has played against this Memphis defense has played against since Mississippi state. Um, if you're, if you're going by the numbers, Isaiah Winstead is third in the AAC in receiving yards, mm-hmm. uh, right now. Um, and they also CJ Johnson is seventh in the, in receiving yards for reference, Memphis, Gabe Rogers is the highest uh, in terms of yardage. Gabe Rogers is 14th in the AAC in receiving yards, and he's the leader uh, for the Tigers right now in terms of yards um, as a receiver. So um, it'll be a challenge for the defense, especially if Quindell Johnson is out. And then, you know, defensively, um, I mean, this ECU team um, gives up some yards, um, not as many as Memphis, 
um, but they give up some yards. They're sixth in the AAC, middle of the pack defensively. So and it looks uh, like and, also Mark, it looks like eighth in passing defense, which might which might help Memphis a little bit. Yeah, potentially. So um, it's gonna be. I think it's gonna be a close game, you know, and it's gonna be. You know, we'll, it'll be interesting to see what the crowd is like. If it's a big crowd, you know, I, I imagine the three and three start has, you know, tempered some of the enthusiasm that was there at the beginning of the year in Greenville. And but that, that's a hard place to win at, both because of, you know, the travel aspect. It's you know, it's a difficult place to get to, um, Greenville, North Carolina. But then also, it's you know, those fans care when the team's good. I've been there when it's been a good environment um, in the past. So. Um, Tricky little two ro- two game road trip here for Memphis with ECU and then Tulane, who looks like, you know, certainly the maybe they're not the best team in the league, but they are the biggest surprise in the league right now. Um, with you know with the way they've started the season um, and coming off this Houston loss, it's uh, it's tricky terrain Memphis is entering <laughs> right now. So uh, we'll have tons of coverage over at commercialappeal.com. Uh, getting you ready for the game with reaction to the game Saturday, 6.30 kick um, in Greenville, North Carolina. Till next week, I was Mark. That was Evan. Thanks so much for joining us. And uh, we'll see you. Uh, we're not going to see you at the Liberty Bowl for a few weeks. So hopefully, uh, hopefully the Tigers are uh, in a better place when they return home. Tiger Football Podcast is a production of the Commercial Appeal. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.